0: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.
1: That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore how they think and what we should all rethink. Today's guest is Alex Honnold. You probably recognize him from the Oscar-winning documentary, Free Solo. He's that climber who did the unthinkable in 2018. When he climbed El Capitan, a 3,000-foot rock wall in Yosemite National Park without any ropes. However insane it looks and sounds, extremely insane. Someone who does something that dangerous with such excellence has a lot to teach us about rethinking our own fears and goals. I wanna go back to the very beginning and just start with asking you about the, the story of when you first discovered a love of climbing oh it's it's so far back at
3: this point that it's hard to really remember because i've always loved climbing even before it was technically rock climbing you know i climbed on on buildings and trees and play structures and walked on handrails and and basically played and then i discovered rock climbing at a climbing gym when i was maybe 10 and then have been climbing full-time since then basically it's like i just love the
1: movement of of climbing i love swinging around and
3: like playing on the
1: holds so I want to I want to spend most of this conversation talking about your psychology and <laughs> I I know it's really tricky because you can't step outside of your own mind to witness it objectively but there are also things that you have access to that nobody else in human history has experienced. Let me let me start though with with one thing that's I think familiar to most free soloers which is what it, what does it feel like to be up on a rock with no ropes thousands of feet off the ground? It totally
3: depends because it can feel invigorating, exhilarating. It can feel amazing. But if you're not prepared for it and you actually think you're going to fall off, then it can be truly horrifying and, and everything that you know people have nightmares about. I mean, it really just depends on on the level of difficulty of what you're climbing and the level of preparation that you're bringing to it.
1: What goes through your mind on a typical free solo expedition, one that, that you don't think is, is especially difficult?
3: If something isn't cutting edge for me, then then it's actually quite relaxing and almost sort of meditative. You're sort of swimming your way up a wall. I mean, it's probably similar to the feelings that people experience when they're out for a jog, like general euphoria, like just sort of a, you know, contentment or peace or whatever.
1: And then what is it like when you're doing something that's more cutting edge? That gets a lot more complicated
3: because, uh, I I don't know, maybe the simplest way is to say that on on truly cutting edge soloing, I often am not experiencing a lot during the climb itself because um, I'm sort of an autopilot. I'm just performing and there's, there's not a whole lot else going on. You know, I'm not appreciating the view, I'm not thinking about anything, I'm just doing the activity itself, which in some ways is the point. I mean, that's kind of the the joy of it, that you're totally lost in what you're doing and you're just doing it.
1: That that sounds exactly like how psychologists would describe a flow state.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've
1: read, I've, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're familiar with Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah,
3: yeah, though I actually don't know how to say his name, but yeah, yeah, I have read the book.
1: Is that what you're experiencing? Do you just have more intense flow while you're climbing than any other activities you do?
3: Yeah, I think so. And to be fair, I'm not really skilled enough at anything else to to reach the same levels of flow, I don't think. You know, because I think part of getting into a flow state is is doing something challenging, but also, you know, having a high enough level of skill at it that you that you can do that challenging thing. You know, because there are other activities like, say, mountain biking or skiing or things that that I'm okay at and I can... Sort of maybe experience flow from time to time, but not really, you know, not the way I can when I'm climbing.
1: Have you never encountered another activity where you had the same drive to master it that you've had with climbing?
3: No, not even remotely close. I mean there are other things that I like to do, but but I love climbing
1: why not like what's what's different about everything else?
3: It's just so much less fun i mean who who knows? I mean you know, I like. I don't know. I like lots of things. I'm trying to think of like the most addictive things, the things that that sort of seize me, and and even the the most are are just nothing compared to climbing. I mean, 25 years of doing something full time, you you get, you get pretty into it.
1: You could, although a lot of people would say they get pretty tired of it too. That it's monotonous, repetitive, boring. You you have not lost the passion for it. Yeah, but that actually
3: might be an interesting thing about climbing, in that it's quite a broad sport, and so you know, when I say I've spent 25 years climbing full-time, wh- what that means is actually quite varied because occasionally I go on on alpine expeditions to climb big snowy mountains. Like this summer I was in the Alps for a little bit and climbed some some big snowy peaks. But then now I'm back home sport climbing, which means climbing, you know, 100-foot rock walls, which is very difficult physically, but way less adventurous than climbing mountains, let's say.
1: Got it, so the variety is built into the activity.
3: Yeah, and, and not only does the variety keep the little spice, But it also can sort of improve your skills and your fitness in different ways. So like if you plateau in one aspect of climbing, you can work on a different aspect for a little while and then find that that's oftentimes beneficial for the area that you were plateaued in. It's just this nice thing where where, you know, when you feel like you hit roadblocks in in your progress, you can always just move sideways a little bit and work on something a little bit different and still find that overall your level is slowly rising
1: it almost sounds like you can cross-train within your sport. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And I'm sure you've heard it talked about as a sampling period where you're supposed to try out lots of different sports and sort of figure out what you're good at and passionate about, but also develop different kinds of skills in different areas. It seems like you violated that trend a little bit.
3: Yeah, maybe, or or maybe I'm just not a world-class athlete. You know, it's, it's hard to say because in some ways, I'm, I'm a very well-known rock climber, but that's also because there aren't very many other climbers doing what I'm doing, but... You know, I'm not competing or anything, so it's hard to judge how strong of a climber I am compared to others. but any anyway, that's I'm, that's a whole different <laughs> thing. but
1: I mean, the only reason you're not competing is because, uh, as far as I can tell, no one else on earth is insane enough to try some of the walls that you're scaling, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that n equals one is still competition right? <laughs> if, if no one's even willing to enter the competition, <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah, I often joke. It's like it's easy to be the best if no one else is doing it.
1: <laughs> like, <that> was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, there's also a reason that no one else wanted to opt into that contest, right? Oh, well,
3: it's just because nobody else has the, the inspiration for it. You know, no one else is excited in the same way. So excitement.
1: I, I want to talk about emotion. I often have heard people call you Spock, and I think it's it's an unfair characterization because you're very clearly not immune to emotion. But I think I think what what people seem to be talking about is is fear. And how you seem to keep your cool in situations where other people would be you know at, at minimum concerned or alarmed uh, or just downright terrified and I want to I guess maybe one place to start on that is do you remember feeling fear as a kid?
3: Uh, well I don't know i don't I mean I'm sure I have childhood memories of being afraid of spiders and things like that, um, but I, I don't remember that well, but I'm trying to think of some of my early climbing experiences that were very scary and and they mostly Are what you would expect from a beginner climber like the first times that I learned how to climb on gear Which is when uh, you're climbing with a rope, but you're still placing hardware into the 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 mountain to uh, attach your rope to Um, that's a little bit different than what you learn how to do when you're climbing in a gym And so when I first learned how to climb on gear I was very afraid that all my gear was just gonna fall out And so like if I fell, you know Everything would rip out of the wall and I'd land on the ground and I would die and and that's a pretty Common fear for people learning how to climb on gear. Uh, and and relatively well-founded fear as well. you know like that's an appropriate <laughs> yeah. thing to be afraid of because if you're learning, you often are placing bad gear. And so it takes a while to to get through the learning curve and and to actually feel confident with it and know that your gear is safe and that everything is okay.
1: And how did you deal with that fear?
3: I mean, the same way everybody else does, you know take some deep breaths, compose yourself, just try your best. I'm sure I've tried everything that that everybody else tries. You know, when, when you're on the ground and you give yourself a little pep talk, you're like, this is going to be okay. Like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to be okay. And then you go up there and you feel really, really scared. And you're like, oh, God, just take some deep breaths. Pull it back together. But I think the difference, though, is that if you if you r- routinely experience that level of fear, eventually you get better at managing it. And you get better at ignoring it when it's appropriate. And, and just to be clear, even as an adult, I still feel fear and I still, you know, feel all the same emotions as anybody else. It's just that I think as I've gotten older, you know, and as I've climbed full time for so long, I've just gotten a little bit better at managing those feelings and, and compartmentalizing them and, you know, mitigating them in different ways. Basically, you could say I have a much more rich and varied relationship with fear than, than most people.
1: I I think one of the things that, that, I found endlessly fascinating. I guess when, when we first met was, I, I think I had just read that neuroscientists had, had found that you had limited amygdala activation in, in your brain, at least in response to sort of ordinary stim, stimuli. And I remember um, really being riveted by this because when, whenever people hear about the amygdala, they think about it as fear circuitry you know that's wrong that it's actually the threat detection system and that the amygdala is is basically you know the fast visceral <laughs> response to detect and prevent whatever might be a threat and i guess it, it, it through that lens it sounds to me like what you've done is you've trained your brain to not detect a threat in a life and death situation or at least not to respond as as quickly and intensely as most people would in in that kind of situation. No, that's
3: that's an interesting framing because I think actually what I've done is trained my brain to detect threats more acutely, you know, actual threats. So that test, you know, I took a fMRI scan with, you know, a battery of images being flashed at me. And to me, it seemed perfectly natural that my amygdala wouldn't trigger while looking at pictures while laying in a safe metal tube because I'm totally safe. I'm just laying in a tube. But apparently, you know, the average human responds to, to images that they see the same way they would an actual threat. So if they see a picture of a spider, you know, it triggers the same thing as if there was a spider there. But I mean, to me, it seemed totally appropriate that after at that point, I think 10 or yeah, 10 years or so of free soling at a high level routinely, I should be able to differentiate between seeing a picture and an actual visceral threat to my life.
1: So, I guess for for the average person, uh, I guess when I think about this through the lens of exposure therapy, they're going through flooding and like they're they're arachnophobes and they've just had a spider dropped in their lap. Whereas what you've done is much more systematic desensitization. Yeah, like the, you looked at pictures of the spider, you had it across the room in a cage, you drew it, and then eventually you <laughs> approached it.
3: Yeah. And now I feel very comfortable with the spider crawling all over me as long as I know that it's not venomous and I know it's not actually lethal.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that, I guess, you know, it seems like there are situations where you detect, you know, a real threat when you're on a wall. I know you talked about a climb at Half Dome where you panicked and I I wondered what activated your sense of threat there and how you calmed down. Yeah, actually, uh, it's not
3: even so much that I panicked on half dome. I, I, I think looking back on it now, I see it more as a, a, a gradual erosion of my of my my mental state, because basically there were a series of missteps as I climbed half dome where I got slightly off route at a certain point. And at the time, it was the biggest and hardest thing that I'd free soloed. So, uh, you know, as it is, it's already psychologically quite demanding because, you know, it's already a big step outside of my comfort zone. And then the last difficult part is up at the very top. So, you know, as I was already getting both physically and mentally quite tired, I got to the hardest part. So it's not so much that I panicked, but it's more that it all started to crumble. You know, like everything was already starting to fray a little bit. And then you're like, oh, no, now it's really falling apart.
1: That's almost worse. (laughs) Yeah, no, it kind of was. So when I think about emotion regulation, I think about cognitive reappraisal theory, which is all about (laughs) saying you can either let emotions immediately guide your behavior or you can pause and reframe them and say, okay, why am I feeling this? What does it mean? And then try to deal with it with a little bit more distance and a little bit more rationality or reasoning. Mm-hmm. It seems like you do that almost instantly. Like the moment you you know, you know start to feel afraid, um, you start to reappraise. Is it that quick for you or do you have to do this consciously?
3: It's not always that quick. Sometimes I have to do that consciously where I have to sort of look inward and be like, what is going on? Like, Take a deep breath, compose yourself pull it together. This is totally irrational, you know, because I still experience irrational fear. I mean, I still have days when I go climbing and I'm like, is the rope going to cut? And, you know, it's totally unfounded. It's irrational, but you still can't help but be like, I hope my rope doesn't cut. But it, it's funny to hear you say that with, with reappraising, because I actually, you know, I don't know the terms for it because I'm not a psychologist, but I often talk about that with with fear, because I feel like fear has this like an overstated impact on people. And I'm like, why don't people treat fear the same way they treat hunger? Where it's your body showing you, like basically giving you some information. Like when people experience hunger, it's their body telling them that it needs nourishment at some point. But most people just set that aside and then they eat lunch whenever it's convenient. You know, but with fear, most people experience fear, which is basically their body telling them that they could be in danger. But then they immediately freak out and act on it. Or, you know, basically it like takes over their... What takes over their cognitive process? You know, they're like, "Holy shit, I'm afraid." You know, and I'm like, "Why can't people set fear aside the same way they set aside hunger and then deal with it when it's appropriate?"
1: I, I'm I'm kind of stunned here because you just articulated what a psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett has spent most of her career building a body of evidence behind, uh, which is the idea that like, there there are only a few kind of basic emotional experiences. And then we have a choice about how we interpret them. And so you might experience like a high intensity negative emotion, but it's up to you to label that fear or anxiety or, you know, reasonable concern or whatever else you might interpret it as. Or or to
3: reframe it as something positive where you're like, I'm nervous and excited for what's to come, you know, as opposed to I'm terrified of what's to come, even though the physical sensation is almost the same.
1: Which is also amazing because a former doctoral student of ours, Alison Wood Brooks, did her dissertation on the idea that calming down is much less effective when you're afraid or anxious than telling yourself you're excited because excitement and, and fear, anxiety are both highly activated emotions that arise under uncertainty. And so you can choose to say, like, wow, I'm really freaking out or like, things are definitely gonna go badly and so I should feel dread versus um, I'm feeling you know, intense arousal with uncertainty, like maybe there's something good could happen. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, is that, is that what you're getting
3: at? Totally. Totally. You can reframe the like, oh my God, I'm scared into, wow, I am on right now. And I'm about to send as, as a climber would say, <laughs> you're like, I'm about to perform.
1: Wow. And so it, you, you actually have these thoughts as you're climbing. I mean, I definitely, I have experienced
3: moments when I'm free soling where I can kind of look at myself and, and be like, you are afraid, like you are over gripping, you're breathing too quickly, your vision is narrowed, you're, you know, basically like all the things that, that you expect to happen physiologically when, when you start to experience fear while climbing. And, you know, then you can just take that breath and be like, okay, time to time to reset, you know, like relax your grip a little bit, take in what you're doing and start again.
2: Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run
1: I noticed something else. Okay, so this whole conversation is just going to be you describing your psychology <laughs> and me giving you a bunch of terms for it that you don't need. But it sounds like you, you talk to yourself a lot in the second person. And I'm thinking about Ethan Cross's research about how when you say you can do this or you know, you're know you like you're not afraid, you're excited, as opposed to I can do this or I'm not afraid, I'm excited, that you create some self-distance and it's actually more motivating and believable. Uh, is, that, is that something you're aware of? Yeah, maybe. I've I've never thought about that, but it is true that a lot of my
3: visualization and like a lot of the ways I think about climbing are sort of more you. And and I think that's kind of in line with what I was saying that with hard-souling, I'm often on autopilot where, you know, there's a certain feeling of being outside of my own body or outside of yourself, you know, where it's like my body is doing what it's supposed to do. And, and there's like almost an observer.
1: Yeah, it's almost like, like when psychologists talk about self-distancing, uh, they, they often go the extra step of saying, you know, if you're afraid, think about somebody else who's afraid and give them advice because the advice you give is usually the advice you need to take. But also you're going to build your own confidence by, you know, by talking to that other person. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like you already know what you're doing. You've also had a lot of experience overcoming fear to, you know, to even go for a climb in the first place. And I, I was really struck when watching Free Solo that like With the early days of El Cap, you just said it's too scary, uh, and I wonder what led you to cross the border to saying, "Yeah, it's scary, but I want to go for it."
3: Yeah, that's a that's a big, <laughs> it's a long journey. Well, so we were just talking about free soloing Half Dome. I did that in 2008, and so starting in 2009, I thought that it was you know time to free solo El Cap because it was like the next obvious thing. I didn't really realize As one does yeah well you know <laughs> what, I, I didn't realize how much further down my personal journey it would actually be but so I started thinking about it but then each year I would just drive in Yosemite look at the wall and be like that is completely out of the question like it's just like I mean calling it scary almost doesn't even do justice to how impossible it felt you know it's not just that they're like oh it looks scary it was like no that is completely out of the question that is that is totally off limits. You know, but then I guess over the years, I just started to, you know, I just worked on other projects. It's basically six years of doing progressively bigger and harder climbs of other kinds and then coming back to it and and having it feel a little bit more comfortable because I'd done so many other things. Basically, there just came a, a day in in uh, 2015. Actually, I, I remember the specific climb because uh, I'd actually taken a couple months off climbing. i had been like trail running a bunch and just scrambling a little. But I went up to support a friend of mine on El Cap. Uh, so I climbed El Cap with them, and it was the first time that when I went up to the wall, I was like, you know, like I could imagine maybe soloing this under the right conditions with the right training, you know, all those kind of caveats. But it was the first time I looked at it, and it didn't seem totally out of the question. And and then sort of by chance, right after that is when the directors of Free Solo approached me about doing a film, and so I sort of harnessed harnessed that motivation to to then actually work on ultimately free soloing it.
1: Wow. It almost sounds logical, not quite. Yeah, you know, but almost. It it reminds me a little bit of the proverb that says, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And my reaction is, no, don't eat an elephant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have a similar reaction to to your desire to free solo a three thousand foot rock wall.
3: Yeah, I know it does seem kind of kind of outrageous, but you know, you have to remember that I was spending three months a year at least in Yosemite climbing full time, and so it's something that I was. Looking at all the time, thinking about all the time. And as a climber, you just know that it's such a historic, you know, that it could be such a historic moment for climbing. Like it's just, it's an important thing that should be done eventually. And I felt like, you know, I could be the one to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe this is because the closest I've ever gotten to being a climber was, uh, you know, like heavy, heavy uh, belaying (laughs) in the Swiss Alps uh, or, you know, belaying in a gym. But I, I hear you say that, and I think, like, if you succeed, there's a decent chance that people who never would have tried El Cap before are going to die climbing it.
3: No, no, I actually sort of disagree in some ways. You know, there's always a little bit of a a prize of the first, you know, or at least with climbing. Like, doing the first ascent or something is is very exciting. But in some ways, I think it takes some of the pressure off for people doing the second or third ascent. So you're really only doing it if you're highly intrinsically motivated and so it's kind of better in some ways
1: are you saying then both that it'll attract people who are motivated for the right reasons and it'll also help them focus and do it for the right reasons
3: well well i'm just saying it'll keep away people who are motivated for the wrong reasons anyway (laughs) got it wow but also that's all a bit of a stretch because realistically there's so few people interested and so few people capable and so it's just like it's just not that big of a it's just not a problem you know it's not like there's a line at the base
1: yeah, there, there aren't that many people who watch the movie and woke up the next morning and they're like, I'm going to go free solo, El Cap, no, I tomorrow.
3: Mean, <laughs> d- during during the free solo film tour, I, I routinely got questions about, you know, like, is this going to inspire kids to risk their lives and things like that? And and it was interesting because I was doing all these film events, so I was, I was chatting with movie audiences all the time and doing Q&As, And my takeaway was that most folks would watch the film and they'd come away inspired to sign up for their first marathon or something like that. But nobody came out of the film inspired to go free soloing, you know, like nobody saw it and was like, (laughs) I want to do that. But they all were they all felt like, you know, it's time to start working on that book that I've been procrastinating on for so long. And I was like, that's perfect, you know, because people use it to to draw motivation for whatever it is that they're inspired by. But almost nobody is actually inspired to go free (laughs) soloing.
1: Yeah, that's, um, I, I, I was really, that, that was one of the things that surprised me the most actually is, you know, when, I, when I've watched inspiring movies before, I often want to follow in the like in the hero's footsteps. And yeah, you know, this did not have that reaction at all. <laughs> I was like, nope, that is not for me. But I could probably be challenging myself a little more and stretching myself beyond my comfort zone a little more. And it sounds like that's been a, the dominant reaction that you've seen.
3: Yeah, that's certainly
1: what I've seen. So I know you get this question all the time, and you've been answering it for a quarter century, but I, I have to ask it, and I'm, I'm hopefully going to make it more interesting than the usual version of it after you answer, which is, um, why? Like, what, what What is the ultimate purpose of being the first to climb a wall?
3: What's the ultimate purpose of any of it? You know, like, why have you written so many books? Like, what? why do you teach? You know, it's like, at a certain point, you know, you just do the things that you enjoy doing, that you feel like you're good at doing, that you feel like you can contribute in some way and and you just like it
1: that's the part that puzzles me the contribution part so when i've studied meaningful work i've found that the single strongest driver is a sense of having a positive impact on other people and one of the things that's intriguing to me about climbing is you clearly find a lot of meaning in it but it's not as obvious to me who benefits from it or who it helps and so how do you how do you connect those dots
3: yeah that's that's a very fair question because it is true that climbing <laughs> isn't really helping anybody but I think you could ask the same question to, you know, the the first skateboarder to try to land a 1080 or something like that. You know, it's like, you know, it's basically just pushing, and this sounds really douchey to say, but you know, like pushing human progress in a certain way and like human potential in a certain way. And if you feel like you can do something that humans haven't done before, I feel like there's almost an obligation to do that just because, it's, you know, it's showing a certain capability. And, and you're right that it's not making anybody's life better and it's not improving global conditions in any way. But it still feels useful. you know, it's like it's it's like a classic exploration, you know, I mean, you're yeah. you are just pushing into the unknown a little bit
1: that that was exactly what what resonated with me about like, okay, what drives you is you're an explorer, you're an adventurer. Uh, you are you're pushing the boundaries of what humans think is possible and what we're capable of, which I think is just inherently cool. And I think you already gave us also an indirect way that it helps people, right? which is it inspires people to to pursue their own challenges and raise their own ambitions. Um the way that you do this I think is um is maybe reflective of a distinction that psychologists make when they study values between benevolence and universalism. Uh, benevolence being kind of I care about helping specific people, universalism being I care more about humanity and the planet. And from watching you and reading your work, it seems like you're low in benevolence and high in universalism when it comes to your yeah, value system.
3: That's really interesting because uh, yeah, I don't know if you know, but I have a foundation, the Honnold Foundation, which supports solar projects around the world. and uh, And that's exactly the case. I am very universal. I care about projects that help Populations and the help the the global environment and things like that But I really have never cared that much about individual like and it's funny because most nonprofits try to fundraise by being like you can help Timmy and Timmy needs your help and I'm like I do not care about Timmy I care about you know the the community or like the the freaking continent, you know, like I care about the bigger picture sort of things
1: well, I, I think that's also consistent. I don't know if you would identify this way or not, but what I know about your finances suggests that you're, you're more or less an effective altruist. Hmm. And when I think about the effective altruism community, it's, it's a very similar ethos of, like, I'm not going to donate my money to baby Jessica who fell down a well. That's irrational. In fact, it's even irrational for me to keep more money than I need for myself. Like, why should I give more of it to me than somebody else? That's, yeah, that's exactly.
3: I'm like, my needs are met, so I may as well be doing something that's useful.
1: And it's such an interesting characterization of useful because it's not its not how most people would define their purpose. Well, the thing is, if, if I find
3: all my purpose, and I don't want to say all my purpose, but I find, you know, much of my personal satisfaction from going climbing every day, you know, I don't need to buy myself a Tiger or like buy a Porsche or something <laughs> to feel more satisfaction. I'm like, I'm already doing exactly what I want to do. So I may as well, you know, do something useful.
1: Yeah. So when I think about failure and success, I think, you know, mo- most people who would walk in your shoes... Uh, even with a perfectly healthy ankle uh, they would they would be afraid of failing as a climber i think you live in a a pretty interesting version of a world where the fear of success is real and I can imagine, you know, as much as I can understand what it's like to be Alex Honnold, saying like, oh no, if I succeed in in climbing El Cap, what's next? Am I going to have a purpose? Will I lose my identity? Um, I think about psychologists who study goal displacement and the idea that when you achieve a major goal, uh, it's kind of a radical reorientation of your life and you're giving something up and, and losing it. Did you go through any of that? I think
3: that for me, maybe it was a little bit different than than some other like major goals that people achieve because I free soloed El cap. And, you know, it was like a it was a moment for the climbing community, but the film wasn't out yet. And so then I spent the next year climbing as I normally would as a professional climber, like going on expeditions and, you know, challenging myself in, in sort of normal ways. And then and then the film came out and then that was just complete insanity for a year. You know, nonstop travel, promoting the film, going to the Oscars, you know, all these wild events and so, you know, that's kind of when it felt like something fundamentally changed. But at that point, I was already two years past having actually done the thing that I was proud of doing. And so, I, I don't know, you know, it's felt like this long, drawn-out process. And, and by this point, I mean, uh, I guess it's four and a half years since I sold it all cap. And I've done tons of other climbs that I'm proud of. You know, I've done a couple other film projects. Like, basically, I've worked on all kinds of other things. And I'm like, you know what, I'm pretty content just chugging along and continuing... Along the the climbing path,
1: love it. Because of all the publicity and, of course, the uh, the one of a kind achievement, uh, you have you have ended up on a couple other paths as well. One of which was giving a TED talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I found your experience at TED, from what I know of it, to be the most unusual one I've ever seen. <laughs> um, I remember, I think the, the the first the the first awareness I had of it. I think I'd given my talk the previous year. Uh, and I went, like, yay, excited to enjoy Ted, don't have to be on the stage, <laughs> Like, might actually have fun. I, I do remember, though, seeing you shaking backstage before you got on stage. And it's just, it's the most incongruous image. Like You look totally chill on El Cap, and now you're just giving a talk. I guess it, it validates the, the theory that people are more afraid of public speaking than death.
3: Yeah, no, I, I have always been afraid of public speaking. And also, I mean, especially, I mean, you know, the the TED main stage is pretty intimidating. And at that point, I hadn't done any mainstream things like that. Really, you know, I, I hadn't done the whole free solo film tour yet, because that that film tour uh, really desensitized me to standing on stages. But at that point, you know, I had none of that practice. And it's funny because I can go train for climbing, you know, five hours a day, six days a week, and love it and feel energized from it, but trying to memorize my TED talk, I could maybe practice for an hour and it felt like pulling teeth and I hated it and it made me feel, I was just like, I'm so bad at this and I'm just, this is so heinous. You know, I was like, this is just not my calling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is, it, it's really hard to find flow memorizing words on a page yeah, on a Screen,
3: yeah. Well, I was like, I'm uh. just not cut out to be an actor. <laughs> you know, like this is not my passion. <laughs>
1: Well, even if you've written your own lines, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you still feel like you're performing somebody else's material.
3: It's funny, though, because uh, since then, I've gotten much more comfortable with speaking and, you know, obviously do it quite a bit more. But it, I mean, the TED main stage is pretty intimidating.
1: It's it's still, though, I mean, it's just you, you realize how weird that sounds, right? Because it's like, well, you like you're not going to die. And, you know, the worst case scenario is like not that bad because they probably just won't publish the talk. Like, do, do, do you realize how odd that seems to a normal person?
3: Yeah, yeah, I hear that. But I mean, it's not that surprising that when you have to do something at a very high level that you're not good at, <laughs> that it's truly horrifying. You know, I mean, I think most people's nightmare would be having to perform opera or something on a stage without, without any training. You know, and that's, and that's essentially how I felt going into TED. I was like, here's a collection of several thousand of, like, the most important people in the world all sitting here watching me do something that I'm not good at. I was like,
1: oh, man, <laughs> like, that, is, that is high pressure. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe there's an expectations component, too, because I, I wouldn't be worried about singing opera. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to do it, right? It would probably be embarrassing, but I don't think anyone expects me to be good at it. Whereas like, you give a talk, you're just talking. Of course you're going to be good at that. And if you're not, that that seems like a much more devastating blow to your ego.
3: Yeah, m- maybe. And and I think part of it is that when you're speaking at TED, everybody else is so good at it. And so many of the other people there have spoken many times. And, you know, and many of them are professional lecturers that do it, you know, basically full time for a job. And then, and then there's me who
1: dropped out of college, you know? <laughs> I feel like that worked out okay for you. But yeah, you know, I, I think... The the only way I could understand this was the distinction you make. I think you call it risk and consequence. Mm-hmm. I've I've always thought about it as just the the severity versus probability question. Of like, your your odds of bombing on the TED stage were probably higher than they are <laughs> of you falling when you climb, and so you're like you're not worried about how severe the consequences are. You're just worried about the the odds. That's
3: that's that's totally fair. And there's the the sort of misguided feeling that bombing in front of so many people will be almost as bad as dying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you know how embarrassing yourself in public can feel as bad as anything else in life.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess, your point is, if you fall, then you you don't at least you don't have the embarrassment.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, with, honestly, that is one of the things with free soloing is, and the film free solo being a little bit of a special case because, you know, it was being filmed as a documentary. But most of the free soloing I've done, I'm totally alone. And so if I feel at all uncomfortable, I can just back down and there's no pressure. There's no expectation. It's just totally internal. Like, am I excited to to do this? And if I'm not excited, then I don't need to. And so there's very little pressure and and there's none of that pressure to perform. I mean, it's funny because people think of free-souling as very do or die. And, you know, that is true to some extent that, you know, if I fall off, I'd, I'd probably die. But the thing is, I get to choose my day and only perform when I want to.
1: Yeah. I guess, you know, at, at some level, it, it seems like <laughs> you, you, you are more afraid of embarrassment than death. Uh, yeah, or, I mean, uh, de-
3: death before dishonor, you know?
1: <laughs> wow. Is is that related to something that I remember in the film you you referenced very obliquely, and I didn't know what was behind it. Uh, I think it was the bottomless pit of self-loathing.
3: What is that? I've been more angstful at various times in life. And- And not necessarily in a bad way, not in like a dark, like depressed, you know, having to whatever, but I've often tried to sort of harness that angst or that general feeling of like, I should be doing more or achieving or whatever. And basically like harness that to do the things that I want to do. And same with, um, there's, there's sort of a rich history in, in climbing stories of like old school, uh, stories of, of folks having devastating breakups and then going and soloing big, scary walls. And you know, as a classic, like, oh, I don't care if I live or die, I'm just going to do this thing. And so I've sort of channeled some of that angst over the years too. like never, never quite feeling that like, don't care if I live or die, but just being like, this is the perfect time to, to harness this kind of thing. It's like, you know, you have all the feelings anyway, you may as well use them for something that you want to do anyway.
1: Yeah, well, I guess, you know, in the what, three years or so since Free Solo came out. I'm sure a lot of people have been wondering, has your attitude or stance changed at all? Are you now wor- more worried about the consequences of falling than you were before? No, not really.
3: So far, no changes in how I feel about risk and managing risk and, and all my climbing. You know, I mean, I still want to be a you know responsible father and everything. but But no, I mean, the thing about it is that I've always wanted to survive. You know, it's not as if I'm just rolling the dice and like hoping that it works out okay. I mean, I'm always putting as much effort as possible into doing the things that I love to do as well and as safely as possible. And so I'm open to the f- the idea that that having a family might change the way I look at it all. But I mean, so far it hasn't yet, but we'll see.
1: No, I, I, I understand where you're coming from in that. I think it sounds like you want to achieve and survive. Yeah, I mean, ideally, ideally. <laughs> those, are, those are both worthy goals. I, th- I think that's
3: actually <laughs> a line in in Free Solo, maybe it's something that my wife, Sonia, is always sort of push is like, why not have both, you know, like why not have a stable relationship and climb at a high level and, you know, do the things that you want to do. And, you know, the, I guess we've been together almost six years and that's kind of been, you know, a theme throughout. It's like, why not do both?
1: The thing that trips me up a little bit is why not do it with the ropes? (laughs) Well, you can, I, I know it changes the experience and I know you've talked about that at length, but like you still you still get the the satisfaction of you know of doing the climb and knowing you were capable physically of doing it and you still experience the rush of of getting to the top and having you know really stretched your body to its limits and like you don't have to worry that you might die
3: yeah yeah and and to be fair that's how i spend most of my year and most of my time like actually when we're done chatting today i'm going to drive to a local cliff and and go work on this project with a rope and you know, basically just push myself physically as hard as I can for the afternoon. And that's how I spend, you know, most of my time. But then occasionally you just want that extra that extra little test, let's say.
1: <laughs> you do. I don't. Well, yeah. I was a diver. Was springboard only. I wasn't I wasn't even willing to take enough risks to compete on platform. And it, it seems like, you know, that that was one of the things I was thinking about as I watched you climb, is like I I would get up on a 10-meter platform knowing you know, like I've I've spent years working on the skills to somersault and twist and land headfirst, and it's probably going to go fine, but I'm just terrified of getting lost in midair and like crashing on the water. It hurts. Yeah, uh, and I think that really held me back as a diver. And I wonder, given <laughs> that you've you've uh, you've scaled much bigger mountains than that, uh, what what would you say to somebody like me who you know even even after developing this skill is still afraid of Yeah, some pretty basic challenges in a sport.
3: Well, so, so, I mean, I talk to beginner climbers about this quite a bit, you know, at events and things and people like, how do I get less afraid of lead climbing or, you know, basically climbing with a rope? And, you know, I mean, I think my first question is always, are, are the fears founded? You know, so in your case with diving, like, are you likely to get lost in midair and then just belly flop onto the, onto the pool, you know, like, 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 does that actually happen frequently? Because if so, then, then it seems justifiable that you're sort of afraid of it because like that would suck. But you know, if it's something that you're vaguely afraid of, but actually never happens or is incredibly unlikely, then you sort of have to work on ways to, to
1: set that aside. You're, you're like a, like a self-trained cognitive behavior therapist. Like, let's, let's figure out if your thoughts are rational and your fears make sense. And if they do, let's figure out how to mitigate them. And if they don't, let's change them. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. I
3: mean, and you kind of have to be for, to be a climber because the thing with climbing is that literally every day you have feelings of fear around certain things because it is a very high consequence activity. Like you can die doing routine climbs with a rope if, you know, certain things go sideways. Like... It's totally appropriate to have fear around that because there is a chance of death, you know, but separating out when that fear is useful or not is is the challenge.
1: Right. That makes sense. And so <laughs> when you think about talking to ordinary non-climbers about, you know, trying things they're afraid of, whether it's, you know, writing the book that they wanted to write or getting on a stage, is there other advice you give that, that people can translate from your world to theirs?
3: I guess general life advice is like, just do the thing, you know, just try. I mean, especially because most aspects of life are relatively low consequence for failure. You know, like writing your book, like is there any downside to you writing a whole bunch? Like, yeah, maybe your book doesn't sell, but you're probably a better writer as a result. You know, it's like, I think most things in life don't have a huge downside to them. So it's like, why not try?
1: I love that. I, um, I think when psychologists study regret, one of the things they find is that yeah, many people are afraid of failing, but in the long run, they look back and they're more likely to have regretted failing to try at all.
3: Yeah, I, I think an interesting thing with that is that, like, is it even failure if you've learned from it and you've taken those lessons onto your next project or the next thing that you're working on? And it's like, that's not necessarily a failure. It's all just part of a long term learning process. But that's an important thing in climbing because so much of climbing is failure like basically most days that you climb, you go and you fail on things. You try things that are very hard for you and you fall off over and over. And then every once in a while you succeed in, in actually climbing it. And you know, that's less true for free soloing obviously because with when you climb without a rope, you, you make sure that you're not gonna fail. But for most of climbing, you fail all the time. And so you kind of have to take this broader look at, at how you define success and failure, where it's like, oh, as long as you're, you know, building fitness, building skills, learning from it, like that's all success.
1: So I have to ask you, Alex, what is your greatest fear?
3: I think when I was younger, I had a lot of the fears that, that you expect from people. Like I was kind of afraid of spiders and things like that. And I think with, you know, years of dealing with fear nonstop, they've all sort of fallen away. I I, mean, I guess my greatest fear is like public embarrassment or public performance or like what I said earlier about uh, opera singing. I'm like, that is still for sure. That would be a nightmare. And like, yeah, I could do it, but I would be so bummed. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want to be dishonored. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. And you have you have such a, a, a specific uh, and unusual definition of honor. How would you define honor? I don't
3: know. That's that's an interesting question that I've never been asked. I don't know. I, I, I think living the correct path. You know, doing the right thing, whatever that whatever that means for your specific circumstance. It's funny because I often think of myself as either what what I call on the program or off the program. You know being on the program means eating well exercising well, training, you know doing my work like climbing hard all those kinds of things and then off the program is You know occasionally when you're just eating way too much dessert or like watching shows every night or doing whatever, you know Basically, just your whole life is a little bit looser And you know, I don't know. I think I, I think living with honor is is very close to just being on the program
1: Wow, wow that is, uh, that's a, I think that's a really great way to define it. Well, Alex, this was, uh, this was a blast, even more fun than I expected. And I now have a few new research projects to launch based on a few of your answers. So wa- watch out. There may be some data coming in a couple of years. You
3: know, awesome. Well, if, if, you need, uh, if you need any help climbing, you just say the word, you know.
1: <laughs> I'll try not to make you regret that. And <laughs> I definitely don't want to regret that. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Cool. Yeah, cheers. Have a good one. You too. I've been thinking a lot about Alex's idea of being on-program or off-program. When you have a specific, seemingly impossible goal like he does, you definitely want to make your decisions according to a clear map. But in life, most of our decisions don't come with a map. And I think all we need is a compass. There are lots of wrong options, but there isn't one right choice. The ideal next move is often the one that's directionally correct. It brings you a step closer to your core values. In an unpredictable world, you can't make a master plan. You can only gauge whether you're on a meaningful path. For more from Alex Honnold, check out his own podcast, Climbing Gold. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Michelle Quint, Sammy Case, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. When I interviewed Margaret Atwood, she told me that she had an alter ego, Peggy, who you know would make the to-do list and do the laundry, and then Margaret did all the creative work. That's that's not going on in your head. That's interesting. I'm like, I wonder if that
3: would help me get all my real life tasks done because <laughs> I, do, I hate doing <laughs> things like that. I'm like, maybe I should assign them to Earl, my friend Earl, who like, <laughs> who does uh, like grunt work around the house for me.
1: I I think I would want to delegate a task to an Earl. I'm going to
3: do my laundry. Or no, Earl is going to
2: do my laundry later.